Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Walter Parks, we have you to thank for our theme song. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, WalterParks.com. And we have Devine Dial to thank for keeping WPVMFM intact altogether and in good shape. She's the manager of WPVMFM. And if you have an interest in community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to take a look and find out what you may not know about how community radio works. WPVMFM.org. And if you'd like to Reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, and my website is jamesnave.com. You can reach me through both platforms. No problem. Would love to hear from you. would like to hear what you're doing, wherever you are located in the world. And if you are interested in writing and you would like to spend a little bit of time, say one hour on Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time, generating some imaginative written work, some creative writing. We have what we call the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. As I said, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. I offer this with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. The door is always open. We ask only you come with your enthusiasm. Imaginativestorm.com is how you can connect with that. And we write for an hour, as I said, and then we stay around after the top of the hour and discuss all kinds of topics. Sometimes the topics are about writing. Other times they're topics about the world, things that are going on now, things you can write about. So we would love to have you join us. And now we're moving into into this this interview today. And I have a, a friend of mine. She's been here before on Twice Five Miles Radio. Her name is Christy Ferrato. And Christy and I have known each other for many years. She and I both went to Vermont College and we received our MFAs in writing from Vermont College. And that was a, a while back and we've both continued to do our work. And Christy lives in Durango, Colorado. She's um, an educator a visual artist, a spoken word artist, a, a poet, a writer. She understands performativity. And in fact, she wrote a long um, dissertation on performativity. And Christy, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. James and Abe, it's so nice to be here with you today. Thanks for having me on. And I did bring up the subject of performativity. I didn't expect to. I know you did your work when you were in graduate school on performativity. So let's start there. I would like for you to define that for people listening. Well, as far as performativity goes, that's been the focus of um, my you know, academic research and then the, my own personal creative work. Also, I came to Vermont to learn how to be a better poet, to learn how to write poetry. Um, I kind of entered Vermont as a you know homegrown poet. I didn't have any 
training or uh, expertise in the area, but there was something internal that sort of um, insisted on coming out. And, and that was sort of the roots of what took me to Vermont. But um, I was inspired by spoken word performers when I went to Vermont. And my studies focused on the written word rather than the spoken word. And that's where I began to dive in and take a look at where does a certain vehicle to communicate a creative um, idea uh, get traction? What might be a better way to present information? Sometimes a poem you know, informs me and it tells me it wants to be located somewhere other than on a page in a book. And that's as clear as I can begin to talk about this idea of performativity. And so I think about people like... Um, Joy Harjo, if anybody's familiar with her work, her band Poetic Justice, phenomenal performer in her own right as, as well as a poet. Um, I think about the great Anne Hamilton, who um, incorporates poetry into so much of her installation work, um, the incredible Ginny Holzer and her xenon projections of poetic text on building facades, rivers and lakes. Um, the list goes on and on, but that's in a nutshell, you know, what I think of when I think about performativity, um, looking at where a piece of work wants to um, reveal itself. When I hear the word performativity, I feel a little bit of freedom as if, well, I could do something myself. I could throw some paint on the wall or I could arrange rocks in the garden or I could even, no joke here, sing in the shower. Well, that's true. Um, I, I started to look at things, you know, when I went to Vermont, we talked about poetry, you know, that intellectual deep dive has you analyzing every little aspect of the writing you do. And there's this idea of deconstructing your writing while at the same time, you're just building bricks and walls around it um, with form and meter and, you know, when to use rhyme, when not to use rhyme, when to use poetic structure or not, and how every decision, every line break, every choice of punctuation either takes you closer to or further away the emotional content of the work that you're um, presenting. And when I kind of extrapolated that out to visual art, you know, sometimes I found that a visual art piece could more profoundly carry the message than the work on a page in a book. And so, yeah, you could just sing in the shower if you wanted to. Do you think all of that intense get this structure down, make every choice you can so that it all fits together note by note. Do you think that moves most people further away or closer to their emotional interior? I think for me as an artist, it takes me as close to the emotional content of the work as I can. I'm not sure that um, a casual observer might even pick up on the idea, for example, in, in this preservation piece about school shootings, you know, each of the drawers in the card catalog that has the information about these school shootings is lined with a mirror. And the intent of that mirror is for us to see ourselves in that work. Now, people who are listening today might, might know that when they look at that work, but other people that might not occur to, you know, that we're all part of this. Um, but every choice I, I make, you know, I, I do give real conscious consideration to how that lends itself to the, to the work itself. It's not a random choice for me by any means. 
You mentioned this project and you mentioned school shooting and here we sit in 2022 and we've had one pandemic, which is COVID-19 still going on all around the world. Hasn't really gone anywhere. It's just revised itself. And then we have another, what one might call a pandemic, which consists of almost three or four times a week, more than four people being shot in a public place, including the school shootings. You brought this project up. I know about this project, and we've spoken of it on this show before, I think maybe three or four years ago now. It's been quite a while. And of course, projects take a long time to bring forth to the world. So tell us about this work that you're doing, because I know people are interested in what in the world can we do about all of these school shootings, or can we do anything at all? Is it just built into our culture, part of our American nature? Well, thanks, Nave. I was thinking about this because I, you know, I was looking back at our last interview. It was four years ago that we sat down and talked about this. And um, since then, we have had uh, a pandemic. That pandemic was good for me as an artist because it forced a certain amount of lockdown where I had the freedom and the time to focus more intently on lots of details of the artwork I do. And part of that involved really bringing home the final um, aspects of the preservation piece. It has been a work that's been in progress for a long time. I'd like to say since 2008, when I wrote the poem that was the inspiration for the piece, Lessons from Lancaster County, back when I was at Vermont College. But I think even further back, as a you know, young child at the University of Texas shootings, and I was thinking about watching the news um, on my parents' black and white TV back in 1966 of that event. And then more recently, you know, my research around this preservation piece has involved looking at school shootings starting from 1966 all the way through Parkland in 2018, going with that kind of agreed upon definition of a school massacre for more people killed in that event or injured. Um, there were 30 of them. And I did a deep dive and researched them intensely. You know, I wanted to focus on the people who were killed in those shootings more than the shooters. I wanted us to remember them and I wanted the work to be emotionally raw. And because it's, it's a horrific thing that's happening in our country the increased frequency. Um, and I, I didn't want us to become numb about this phenomenon. And it's, it's so easy to have an event that happens and, and 30 hours later, we're on to the next event. And so the work has been about somehow ensuring that we don't become complacent. Drawer houses, um, one of the 30 shootings that have taken place um, from the University of Texas forward. Each nest is unique to the shooting. And there's an audio element that uh, is a recording of um, birds at, at uh, Pastoris Lake that I recorded one morning. Throwback to Flanders Field and, and the sounds of the birds in the, in the killing fields. So where I'm at now with the project is the work has to get out into the world. I, I need collaborators to help me get this work into the public eye because it is very emotional and it is timely. And since we've last talked, you know, there have been 119 more school shootings. Um, just this year alone, there have been 27. 
The pandemic was interesting in that during 2020, there were only 10 school shootings because most of our schools were in some form of lockdown or else they were closed. It was palpable that for once we were safe, but I'm an educator first and foremost. That's what I've spent my life's work doing. Part of that work is this uh, ongoing knowledge, this gnawing reality that every time we walk into a building where we work, you know, we're subjecting ourselves to the next incident. It's funny, you and I were talking on the phone yesterday, right at the end of the conversation, I said, I got to go. Well, my, my daughter, who lives just uh, about 20 miles away in a little town, tiny little town called Mancos, Colorado, she was calling me uh, to let me know that she was on lockdown. There was an active shooter going on in her neighborhood. And, uh, you know, this is, this is just mind-boggling to me, but for me personally, with the frequency and, um, you know, ever-increasing occurrence of these shootings, suddenly I have friends in Uvalde, Texas, who have children in their school district. I was holding a staff meeting the day the Aztec High School shooting occurred, and, and I have people who work for me whose family members either attended Aztec High School or were staff members at Aztec High School. So it's becoming increasingly closer and closer to my swirl. And I think we're naive if we think it wouldn't happen when we step off of this recording and go to the grocery store later this afternoon. Um, that's our reality. And somehow I want to use my work to be of service to help change that reality. So before we go on, mention what you do in education and where you work and how you prepare for this kind of stuff. You mentioned the Aztec school that was in New Mexico, where you work in Farmington, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, I work at a college, a community college, um, San Juan College. And I oversee all of the um, academic advising and disability services work at the campus. And so part of our work includes maintaining vigilance against school shootings. But this is a thing that's amazing to me. You know, if you come into my office, I can show you where I have um, some snacks and some water stashed deep behind the crevices in my office and where I have a little place that I can quickly crawl into and turn off the lights and dim the monitors and lock the door and go silent as we've all been trained to do um, the minute we get an alert that there is a, a shooter. We've had um, live uh, active shooter drills on campus where the FBI and local law enforcement have conducted, you know, mock shooter events, shooting blanks, but nonetheless shooting off rounds in the buildings. We've been trained on how to respond. And I was thinking about this, just the educators alone, the trauma that's inflicted on all the educators across this country, knowing that this is uh, a part of their landscape and their reality is huge. You know, it just gnaws at you. And every time you hear a balloon pop, everybody's like hitting the ground. You know, it's it's nerve wracking. Um, we recognize uh, the building I work in. We're one of the potential places where uh, an event could logically happen because our building includes the office that takes money. Child development centers are another targeted area. You know, you think about federal offices and stuff. I, I can't go to my social security office without passing through a metal detector but I can send my child into that environment, you know, where nobody is checked before they walk into a building. Do you think that would be one solution to this problem? Right now we have people talking about all the solutions. What can right. we do? And every time the 
shooter chooses a target and goes into the school, we have the same thing over and over and over again. On the media, a podcast out of WNYC talks at length about all of these things. Brooke mm -hmm. Gladstone, I think, is the one who hosts it. And I've listened to many programs discussing the question, what do we do? Is there anything we can do? Or do you think this is some built-in part of our coding as a culture? And then I'd like for you to go back to what you're attempting to do with the with your card catalog project. Before I get into the weeds of, you know, what could we do? I have to zoom out a bit and say, I always believed until I suck my last breath that there's hope. This mealy mouth national dialogue that we're having around all of this just stuns me. It's like we are the people who've put men on the moon, who've flown drones on Mars, for God's sakes. You tell me we can't secure schools. I don't know that we can secure the world from, you know, nut jobs with semi-automatic weapons, but we made a commitment after 9-11 to ensure that people didn't hijack our airplanes and fly them into buildings. And we've been pretty damn solid in that effort. And yet I'm not sure why we can't make a similar commitment to children in schools. I wonder about the pressure to bear that our teacher unions and our teachers could bring on this matter because we talk about guns, 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 but how about the employees who are asked to work in this environment every damn day of our lives? And you know, the message is the guns are more important than you people. I just can't believe that the collective pressure to bear couldn't come up with some creative solutions to maybe not totally eradicate this problem, but certainly minimize it. We're on par. What we've had 200, what did I see earlier today? Over 200 shootings just this year since January, mass shootings. That's huge. We get more sidetracked for me in all the reasons that it can't work or it might not work or than anything else. And, and I see no attempt to just try something, do something. What I want to do with my work, exactly what's happening right here, we're having a conversation about it. And that's what I think is so important is that we continue to have a conversation about it because there's a, I feel like there's a lot of people, organizations that are deeply invested in us not talking about it. They want us to focus on other issues. Describe the work and add details so we'll know what it is. There's 30 nests. These nests are built out of Icelandic sheep wool and mohair, bits and pieces of information that are unique to the, the individuals that were a part of that event. So for example, the clock tower shooting at the University of Texas that nest includes clock parts, pieces of the clock, and text from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Virginia Tech, for me, was a super dark event. And so, you know, the Virginia Tech nests are made out of black wool. They include a bullet that has uh, a Jewish star engraved on the bullet because um, the professor who was lecturing that day in the classroom and the shooter entered was a survivor of the Holocaust. You know, he gave his life so that the students in the classroom that day could jump out the window and be saved. And uh, I thought that that was particularly moving. So there's a card catalog that I got from Rutgers University. I chose the card catalog because for me, it was evocative of a school environment 
a place of learning. And um, I use those drawers to house the nests for the 30 shootings that we're talking about today. And I looked at each and every one of those, those children and those people that were killed in that shooting that's represented in each drawer and gave deep conscious consideration about their lives and tried to create something that was reverent and, and holy and honoring of them that we might not forget about their existence and that we might feel deeply about what happened in each instance, uh, such that we might be motivated to do something about that. I've seen the card catalog that you got from Rutgers, probably was made in who knows, 1920, 1930, you may know when it was constructed. For those people listening, if you haven't seen a card catalog, or if you don't know what one might be, and you might not know if you are under 30, say, <laughs> in the libraries all over the country, you have these large cases full of cards, and that's why they call it the card catalog. And the cards were in there. And if you wanted to find a book, you had to go to the card catalog, slide the drawer open, find the card, write down where the book was located, and then go to the shelf and get the book. Now you can just Google whatever the subject is and the information pops up on Wikipedia or pops up in all sorts of different, from all sorts of different sources. So the card catalog represents the analog thinking back in the time when we were not digitalized. Mm -hmm. Even before right. the black and white televisions appeared, the card catalogs were with us back in the days of radio, back in the days of the complete analog experience. And now you have this card catalog bringing it forward to 2022 in the most profound, intense digital age we've ever been in because we've never been here before. And it's changing every month. It, it increases Perhaps a lot of these shootings are because of all the digitalized information and confusion that floats around because of that space. And in the card catalog, instead of books, you find the nests with the bullets mm -hmm. in them and the mirrors. So not only does the card catalog have its performativity elements of the old and the new, it symbolically suggests there are ways to protect us from this if we allow ourselves to think imaginatively and poetically about what to do with the school shootings. And it's interesting when I say poetically, think poetically about school shootings, a part of me rebels, poetics and school shooting together. And yet when you say poetics, you're saying amplification of one's imagination. How can we imagine something that will create safety for these babies? who are born today, four years from now, will be in kindergarten under the same threat likely we have now. That's true. You know, um, I got a text message from a friend of mine that I've taught with for years and years. I, you know, my early roots as an educator started in the classroom. My good friend Marcy, she sent me a text message on May 25th, the day the Uvalde shooting happened, and she said, thinking of you today and your project, I guess you're going to need more drawers. So hard to believe. I've unplugged my phone and I'm not watching the news today. Try to save my mental health. Hope you have a way of doing that too. I think I do need more drawers. I eventually opted to have the drawers be hand-opened 
because I wanted a viewer to be able to engage with the work more directly. Any fears I had about people disturbing the contents of the drawers or stealing one of those engraved bullets, you know, each, each drawer inside the nest houses bullets that are engraved with the names of all the children who've been shot. Collectively, it's, it's a stunning thing to see that, that much mass carnage housed in one little area, you know, but it brings it home, the magnitude of the problem we're dealing with here. The technology aspect is a huge one. You, you, you raise uh, technology and the digital era and how that has contributed to the situation we're in right now. I, I, I feel this national angst. I don't know about you, but it's like the national rage. It's, I, I guess I'm getting to that age now where, you know, I, I find myself saying more and more, boy, you know, I remember when I was raised, but it wasn't just this sort of middle finger in the air and your dukes up the minute somebody, you know, says something you disagree with or just looks at you a little different. And, and today it just seems like it's in your face wherever you go. And, and that that's the norm. And, and rather than something that we all collectively say, that's not how we ought to be interacting with each other. I think when that gets amplified, the digital age and the amplification element of it that you're talking about, I don't know how you put that genie back in the bottle, but that is a real ugly genie that's been let loose right now. And uh, is that part of our story, our cultural evolution? I think it may be. And I'm also thinking now, earlier in this conversation, I'm thinking about my comment, is this some sort of in Americana cultural phenomenon? Now that we talk a little more, I'm thinking, no, this is not Americana culture in action. What we're experiencing is something humanity has been dealing with in one form or another almost forever. I suspect the people in the Ukrainian world are not thinking about school shootings today because their cities have been leveled. The mothers, the young mothers with the infants who four years from now might be in an American school because they escaped the Ukraine and came here. When those mothers are running across the fields or in the car driving west from the war, they're holding their babies while they hear bombs go off behind them. Right. All over the world we have this. So we come back to your, your card catalog and we think of the millions of card catalogs in libraries all over the world, all housing the information for people who desired more knowledge. They pull the cards out, find the book, read the book, and maybe they know more, hopefully, than they did before they read the book. You may not need more drawers. You would be working in a futile proposition because you will never get enough drawers. You may have enough right now what you may need to match the mirrors in the drawers, you may need a hall of mirrors to amplify the drawers so that we look at the drawers as confined examples of what may be human nature that's ongoing. Each drawer represents a little bit of you, a little bit of me, because we are as much a part of that human nature as, as everybody else. I would like to think my nature will allow me to be kind and generous and hopeful and gracious to people, maybe even do what the professor did at Virginia Tech, stand in front 
while the students dive out the window and give my life. I like to think I'm, I'm there. But those drawers, each one individual, and yet they represent all the millions who have mm-hmm. come and then gone. They do. I, I, I was uh, talking to my sister-in-law, the great Donna Ferrato, earlier this morning. We are talking about her work in domestic violence and her photography um, across decades of time. She was feeling a little frustrated with um, the state of the world, feeling like there was some futility to her life's work, you know, the hopelessness of the condition of the world. And I, I don't see it that way. I do see it that whatever we can contribute on whatever level to the betterment of mankind, um, it's hard to know. Uh, is that the butterfly effect? How that does or uh, doesn't um, make just a small change in the vibration of, of the world. But I have to believe that it does. And that all those people who showed up and put their bodies in the way so that others could be okay, or who wrote a poem or gave a lecture or painting or however they chose to, to try and contribute uh, for the good of society and mankind. I have to believe that that made a difference, that, that we could be um, a whole lot worse off right now than we presently are. You know, that hypothesis can be tested, the butterfly effect. And it just occurred to me the way anybody listening can test that. I suspect we all have had an experience, a small comment. Maybe we noticed a tree. Maybe we bumped into somebody and said, excuse me. Maybe we decided to give a five, $5 to the person sitting in the parking lot in a wheelchair, smoking a cigarette with a cap on her head that suggested maybe cancer. Give the five bucks to that person. Those little moments change our lives forever. So we each have had that experience. Somebody said something. Maybe a stranger. And you made a decision that changed you and changed your life forever. And often people report for the better. Not, I didn't drive my car off the, the, the brink and go down into the canyon, into the deep, dark river. But it's better. The light shines brighter because you, somebody did just a little something. I like to think of the shy student in the back row who never raises his or her hand and then one day you see the light in the eyes (laughs) and you think wow and you don't even know what you said and 15 years later they come back and report guess what and you're like are you the same one that was in the back row so maybe 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 optimism has value maybe that is the answer no matter how bleak it is We can choose to engage the environment around us with an optimistic attitude. Well, I think it's uh, essential. I think it's the ballast against being dismantled by the negativity of the world. It's uh, the thing that keeps us grounded. So what are you going to do now with your card catalog. We spoke of it four years ago, and I bring this up because people talk about making art. 
And of course, we live in the, the immediacy of our work environment, our industrial environment. I've got to make something and it has to happen now and it has to pay out tomorrow. Can I get a million views on my platform, et cetera? Art takes a little bit longer. Yeah, it does. You've been at this now six years, seven years? Uh, well, the poem was written in 2008. You know, during COVID, what I was able to do, the piece sits on a beautiful granite table. Um, a welder helped build the frame for the table. The legs are in the shape of bullets. They're, they're beautiful. It's a, it's a gorgeous museum quality piece today. It's ready to go out the door. I also embarked on another project called Locus Communis. And, and that work is on the website. It, it, it's originated with concerns about what was happening on our southern border and, and how we're mistreating individuals along the southern border and quickly morphed into a much, much bigger project. For me right now, this morning, my, my conversation with Donna Ferrato had to do with, I am first and foremost an educator. I, I came to the art world, always an artist, but it wasn't how I made my, my living. And so I'm at this juncture now where I have this body of work that I know needs to get out into the world. Uh, you know, I'm looking for just one collaborator, one person that wants to um, help me bring the world forward into the public, just like you've helped me bring the world forward in an audio sense today, James Nave. Eternally grateful for today and all you've done for me to support the work along the years. When I was in Vermont, some of the folks there gave me this piece of pottery. It was part of a collection of um, vessels that were made. They were called throat vessels, and they bestowed upon me the throat vessel. Um, it was sort of symbolic of allowing myself to be a conduit for what wants to be expressed. I can't possibly sit before you today and say I'm some artistic genius that thought up some cool stuff. It's not like that at all. It was just a moment when an idea came and I was conscious enough to be aware of it and show up for it. And that's how the work has evolved. My website, christyferrato.com, is a great place to see the work. Um, I, I think it's coming along in a respectable fashion. And, you know, the whole focus right now is getting the work out. And so to that endeavor, I've been reaching out to um, people all across the country, different organizations, Sandy Hook Promise, Hashtag Unload, um, the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Arts, the Fine Arts Complex in Tempe, Arizona. I'm kind of getting after it. Can't say I know exactly what I'm doing, but that's, that's how I'm approaching it. So would you say your website one more time and spell your name so people will be sure they have the right source to find out more about this? I'd be happy to, Nave. It's Christy Ferrato. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-Y. F is in Frank, E-R-R-A-T-O.com. ChristyFerrato.com. You are using all of your experience and strategy to get this work out. Getting work out is a completely different job than making work happen in, in the studio. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you, you are doing to get noticed, to make yourself more visible, to create stickiness around this, this essential idea, this essential work that you're doing? Great question, because I think you've known me over the span of, of, of many years, I was thinking at least 15, 20 years now, and, and probably um, observed my evolution over time to some degree. And 
I've, I've never been a self-confident artist in, in the sense of um, when I first met you and then going to Vermont um, really changed how I felt in relationship to my work. But uh, I have to remind myself every day, you know, who are you not to shine? Putting the work out there and trying to get it out in a public sense is a whole different journey for me. It's much different than the creation of the work. And so feeling uh, confident in the work I create is one thing and, and enjoying the great sense of fulfillment I get from being in my studio and working endlessly, toiling away, building nests and, you know, um, collaborating with individuals on audio tracks and this and that and the other is fabulous. But now I'm into this focused work of reaching out to people who might be interested in the work. So I understand this about myself. I'm not making coffee table art. Nobody's going to buy my card catalog to put it in their living room. I'm clear on that. So there are certain organizations and entities that most likely aren't interested in my work because they're not going to make money off of it. I'm more interested in partnering with people and organizations that are looking to further the conversation in a positive way around gun violence, specifically school violence, and how I might um, partner with them. I, I, I'm not looking for anything in return. You know, I can certainly carry a good conversation with my poetic friends about um, working in, in the area of performativity, and, and that's a nice lecture. But I'm also really interested in partnering with other organizations, whether it's like maybe the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, some of the gun violence organizations that have sprung up around school shooting to help support and contribute to the work they're doing. I always think when I have these conversations about how smart we all seem to be, and yet how we fall short when it comes to communicating to people some kind of motivator that will get them moving. I go back to your comment around 9-11 and afterwards we all had to take our shoes off walk through the magnetic areas the the gates to get on the airplane we were checked we were searched we're still checked we're still searched we have to fill out numerous forms and yet the airplanes are full mm -hmm. people are just packed in and they're they're happy to do that and i i keep racking my brain to think could the poets come up with some way of saying this to motivate people to accept the idea that we could create solutions or even come up with the solutions? And I tend to agree with you. I think you could, with not that much investment, come up with ways to secure schools. Mm -hmm. I think you could hire people like the, the TSA people to bring people through these schools. You don't have to have armed guards with automatic weapons and bullets strapped over their chest, but you could have a whole group of people somehow working with that, plus taking a look at, at our gun culture. Right, think of the insanity of this. Think of the insanity of this. After 9-11, we didn't invest gazillions of dollars teaching people how to stop a hijacker when they're in the air, which would have included maybe some martial arts or how to use available, 
items in your flight experience to take down that hijacker and possibly some flight training. You'd need to know how to fly the plane if they'd harmed the pilot. And you might need to know how to do some basic medical care. This is what we're teaching teachers. They took a totally different approach with the airplanes. They said, we're stopping that nonsense right here, right now. That's not going to happen on airplanes anymore. But we're doing the exact opposite in our schools. We're saying we're going to allow this nonsense to continue and we're going to you know, teach you guys how to stop a, a severed artery. And they're trying to stop the unpredictable person. You can't identify that person. Who knows where those people are, at least in, in military terms. Now, I'm not a military person at all. And I don't know if we could have ever stopped the people who flew those airplanes in 9-11, but they were using tactical, strategic approaches to 9-11. We do have military ways of going about this, but this is not military. The school zones are not war zones. There's got to be a, a, a way to... And yet they, oh, are, they are war zones. Yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> they're not designed. School zones are pencil zones. They're designed for paper and pencil and in and, and, and zones where students swing and and where when they get in high school, they go to the prom and they actually swing and they have joy and they love their lives in a way that only children and young people can love. So I don't know how to approach this. But there must be some way to do it. And see, Ivana, coming back to your question of, of how am I going about that, um, because I don't know what I'm doing, I am relying on networking, the, the principle of networking and, and hard work. One thing I learned about art is it's hard work. You know, it, it's not enough to just sit around and think about it, but to actually manifest it and bring it forward takes time and, and cultivation. And so... Um, even one of my, my passwords has, uh, has to do with the words art forward. It's everything is focused on bringing the work forward. Having a consistent list of people to reach out to and share the work with and drive them to the website, ask them for their uh, ideas and suggestions of who, who might be interested, where I might reach out to, is taking me down some interesting roads right now. I'm talking to a lot of people around the country and and uh, meeting a lot of people, and I don't know where it'll all end up, but that's that's what I've been up to. The, the, every time we talk, I get more and more thoughts, but I just had this vision just now of this card catalog, and I know the work you do, and your work is always beautiful. You've never produced anything that didn't have multiple layers of appeal. Thank you. And I've always appreciated that. I've always, I don't, I'm like, how does she do that? She goes down the basement and then she emerges with all these things. What what is this? What is this? What is like this? I go in the basement. What is this artist up to? This idea popped in my head where you have the card catalog, beautiful, on a stage, and you create a play like the vagina monologues. And the card catalog is the center of gravity, the center of the earth. It's what the Wizard of Oz wished he could be. And there it sits. It's the information. It's the mentor. It's the wise elder sitting there informing the people around it. Mm -hmm. And it could even be a film as well, where the That's card brilliant. catalog is its own character. It speaks. 
it discusses, it talks, it dispenses wisdom. And inside of its interior lie the essence of every person who's been subjected to these horrors, not just the students with their names written on the bullets, which if you look at it, you cry. I mean, one drawer will do you in and you've got 30 of them. The card catalog is the repository of all of the ancient wisdom, just like all of the card catalogs all over the world were for ages and ages and ages. Now, we would like to think that repository of ancient wisdom is digitalized. I don't know. What if digitalization fails? Where does that Well, it comes go? back to him historical omission. I mean, who decides what gets digital, digitalized and what doesn't? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation. So you have created an analog symbol that has the capacity to move, function, and think, and become a character that leads and informs the cultural discussion around what in the hell do we do next and how do we do it as feeling, thinking, deliberate human beings? That's a brilliant idea. Now, go ahead and write the play. I don't have this Well, I will, and I was just going to say, that means we have to get together in a couple of years again. (laughs) I don't have the chops to write the play, but maybe I do. You know, I should should not. It could be poetic expression. Well, I, I shouldn't discount it. And the reason why I say that is because when you were talking, I didn't come up with that idea. That idea just appeared in front of me. And exactly. I saw the people walking around on the stage, interacting with it, opening the drawers and being really surprised. Or maybe the stage has four or five card catalogs and each one has information like it traditionally did. And then the person stumbles onto this and it's like, my God, I've traveled in time or traveled in a dimension. It's a dimensional thing more than time. Yeah, that's brilliant. As always. Well, you're brilliant as always, Christy. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time on this early June summer morning to just be with us and talk a bit. Yes, I'd love to continue the conversation as always. Well, we will. We will. And so, you know, give us your website one more time. That's Christy Ferrato, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y-F-E-R-R-A-T-O.com. All right. Christy Ferrato, thank you so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. Pleasure's been all mine. Thank you for having me. And there you go, my friends. My conversation with Christy Ferrato. When I first met Christy, it was at Rosemary Watola Traumer's house about 15 miles down mountain from Telluride, Christy came to a workshop I was conducting at Rosemary's house. I don't remember how many people were there, probably 12, and Christy was one of them. And after the workshop, Christy asked me a bit about what was required to get an MFA in writing, and I told her I'd just recently finished an MFA at Vermont College, and she was interested. Christy was working as an educator, as she still is to this day, and she also was making art, visual art, photography, 
combining things together, putting elements together and creating different art pieces, sculpting, if you will, from found objects and turning those found objects into something meaningful that communicated many of her messages. I would say Christie is an artistic activist. She gets on a topic like immigration or school shootings and she makes things in many dimensions like the Rutgers card catalog filled with the wool nest and the bullets engraved inside. She makes these things in order to get her sense of a dilemma out into the world, her sense of maybe even solutions to different dilemmas. So when Christy asked me about the MFA program, I was happy to tell her and she did indeed go to Vermont College and she got her MFA in writing, which was one small element of the many layers of artistic work that Christy does, including working as an administrator in the community college in Farmington, New Mexico. So Christy is a good example of a person who works in all kinds of different genres and doesn't let one genre, like working as an administrator in a community college, interfere with the other work she does artistically. It all comes together in one package. And I think it's important to keep in mind that you can do all kinds of things throughout your your day. You don't have to limit yourself to one thing, to one identity. I like to think of them as I am identities. You don't have to limit yourself to one I am identity. Like I am an advertising executive. I am a lawyer. I am a carpenter. I am a glass blower. I am an administrator at a college. I am a writer. We could go on and on. I am this and I am that. You are all that you have done, all that you have met. You are the collection of every experience you have ever had. That's why your name is important. Rather than saying, I am a writer, I am a carpenter, I am a real estate agent. Maybe your name is enough. I am Christy Ferrato. And Christy's name contains all that she's done. Like I said earlier, I've had Christy on this show before. In fact, I've had Christy on this show twice. And both times she talked about the project she was doing with the card catalog and the bullets in Wool Nest. And... I was drawn to that project then as I am now. I have no idea if there's a solution to any of these problems. Christy and I talked about it a bit. I speculate, I wonder like everybody else does. Maybe there's no one solution to this. That's why I come back to Christy's offering with the card catalog. One, one thing one person does ripples to another and another and another. And that may be just the way all of this works. It may be the way art works. And the children are important. And with that, I'd like to close the show with a song titled Nature Boy, Nature Girl, covered by Big John Scherer. It's Big John's arrangement. And the song speaks of what we need 
in order to solve our problems. So here's Big John Scherer offering Nature Boy, Nature Girl, and a solution that I think we can all agree with. Well, there was a boy, a very special kind of boy. He wandered very far. Big John Scherer singing his arrangement of Nature Boy, Nature Girl with the good advice to love and be loved in return. That's the greatest thing you can do. I agree with the song and I agree with the way Big John Scherer sings it. I like his work and I like all the work that Christy Ferrato has done. And I also 
appreciate you tuning in and listening to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to hear more of Walter's music, Davine Dial, once again, we couldn't do this work without you. You manage WPVM-FM, and the rest of the contributors manage to put their shows together because of you. So thank you very much. If any of you listening would like to know more about community radio, WPVM-FM.org is a good place to start. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. jamesnave.com is my website. I'd love to hear from you. Also, every Saturday morning, I host an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. Allegra and I gather with writers, and we, we spend 10 minutes generating written work, and we spend the rest of the time discussing it, playing around with it, reading it, talking about it, and enjoying each other's company. So if you have an interest in an hour on Saturday morning in the world of writing, you can find the link to the Zoom at imaginativestorm.com, and we gather at noon to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you'd like to join us, imaginativestorm.com. The door is always open. And I'd also finally like to say once again, thank you for listening. I couldn't do this without you. I really appreciate it, and I do hope you are in the mood to tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.